would remain standing and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one, I'm going to read verse 18 through the end of that chapter. Well, let's ask for the Lord's blessing and enlightenment. Now, gracious father, we do bow before you in the blessed and sweet name of Christ, our Lord, our great teacher. And we ask Lord that you would enlighten our minds, that you would open our eyes, Lord, that you would remove anything that would keep us from hearing the truth, understanding it and that you would take it deep into our hearts, Lord, that it would shape our intentions, it would mold our will, and it would guide our feet. So Father, bless the reading and the preaching of this gospel, this word this morning, for Christ's sake and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. And beloved, I wanna begin reading at verse 18. For the word of For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh and not many mighty nor many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the, dis- and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, beloved, we continue to make uh, our way uh, through Uh, Corinthians chapter one, I want to remind you of the audience Paul is writing to, to the congregation there. Uh, Corinth was in all respects a very educated, a very affluent, a very modern city of the time. It would be uh, similar to Atlanta or New York or any modern city in our own nation 
where there is just all of those what we might call human conveniences and where technology is thriving. They lacked nothing. They really didn't need anything. And yet with all of those things that they had, they possessed, with all of the technology, with all of the the economy, the strong economy, with all of its education, it was still one of the most decadent and wicked and sinful cities around. Very much like Atlanta, like New York, like Las Vegas, like any major city in this in our own land. These Blessings, we would call them, because there's nothing wrong with affluence. There's nothing wrong with education. There's nothing wrong with technology. We are very, very pleased with technology. We, technology, a gift of God to make our lives better, not worse. And yet we see that even these things that we have at our fingertips and disposal often do not make our lives better. In, in, in the sense that we become closer to God, but worse. And it seems to give man, fallen man, if you will, greater opportunities and more time to sin and to be creative at it. And this is the city that God had marked out for Paul to go to. Hold your place, hold your place there, and let's look at Acts 18. Now, Acts 18, uh, we all are familiar with Acts 17, uh, Paul's famous debate with the philosophers in Athens. And after that, we see in verse 1 of Chapter 18 says, after these things, that is after that experience, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working for by trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he took out his garment and he said to them, your blood be on your heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. 
And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, and do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months teaching the word and uh, teaching the word of God among them. Well, what that passage does is tell us that God, as he, he sent Paul into Corinth and Paul did what he customarily did. He went to the synagogue and he preached as verse five says, he preached to those Jews and those what we might call a, um, those converted uh, Gentiles to the Jewish faith that he preached to them Jesus, that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And that's an important aspect. Jesus is the one sent by God to atone and make right sinners. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. And Paul was met with much resistance. And we believe that Paul was met with so much resistance that Paul even feared for his life. The gospel preaching this crucified Savior stirred up anger and animosity and malice with those Jews that refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah and more than likely threatened his life as they blasphemed God. And it says right there in verse six, a pretty dramatic scene, if you will, and they blasphemed God. They resisted this preaching, probably even possibly threatening Paul to the point where he gets up and he says, look, I'm done with you. And he, he, he leaves and God comes to Paul in a vision to comfort him. And it, it basically is telling Paul, look, don't give up. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm going to be your protector. I still have many people that need to be converted in this city and I need you preaching the gospel. Now, what does that do? I mean, why is that important? Well, I think for a couple of reasons as we begin to really work our way through the meat of this letter is first of all, it tells us that Paul was not superhuman. Paul was not a super apostle. Paul was a regular man. Um, he had great faith in God. God had gifted him mightily. I believe he was very educated, very astute, uh, a scholar, but yet he still bore all the weaknesses of what it is to be human, what it is to be a man, what it is to be uh, someone uh, who battles with the flesh daily. And, and Paul was having doubts and God came to him and said, stay the course, Paul, I'm with you, I'm going to protect you. I have people here that are gonna believe. I have people here that are going to accept Christ. I have people here that are going to be incorporated into the body of Christ, the church of the living God. I need you to preach the gospel. And this is why Paul says in those opening verses of Corinthians, listen, I, I baptized a few of you. I didn't baptize most of you. Who would have done that? Well, Timothy, those who had come down from Macedonia. Paul began to dedicate himself to the study of the Old Testament so he could preach the word. He was, he was, he was extracting out of the Old Testament the truths of Christ, about Christ, the ministry of Christ so that he might set before the people the scriptures and Jesus Christ. 
That's what Paul was doing. And that's why he says right there in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He had dedicated that work to other ministers, not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would be Uh, would not be made void. Paul says, I was very articulate. I came self-conscious about making sure that my techniques and my methods did not distract from Christ. Well, there's another reason I think Paul greatly emphasized the preaching ministry. I mean, we know it's a primary grace. That was last week's sermon. If we were going to choose between uh, having baptismal services and even taking the Lord's Supper apart from the preaching of the gospel, we would, should decline it. We should preach the gospel, and if so be it, we can have baptisms. Great. If we can participate like we do each Lord's Day of the Lord's Supper, Fantastic but we don't give up the preaching of the gospel. Turn into Acts 26. I want to, I think Paul had this also in his mind when he made such an emphatic statement because you can imagine people saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Christ commissioned you to baptize. Right, Matthew 28. And Paul was not denying that at all, but, but you have to understand Paul's conversion was rather extraordinary. I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure none of us have that same experience. And it's interesting when I used to, when I was a young Christian, listened to, uh, you know, gospel preachers and, you know, talk about this, the conversion of Paul. And and it's interesting to listen to people kind of magnify their own conversion experience similar to Paul's. It's not like Paul's. Paul's is very unique, very special. And look at verse 18. Well, now remember, Paul is before Agrippa, and he's really testifying. He's given testimony here. I'm not going to read this whole narrative that Paul is, is giving to him, but just back up to verse 16. Now, this is Jesus speaking to Paul. Paul is saying to Agrippa, this is what the Lord said to me. This is what the Lord said to me. All right, I'm breaking in the middle of it. He says, but get up, stand to your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now in this verse 18, this is the importance of the preaching. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now that's the preaching, that's the power of preaching right there, okay? So you make yourself a note when Paul speaks of, of the cross, when he speaks of the word of the cross, when he speaks of this gospel there in verse 17, but to preach the gospel. Uh, 
this good news. This good news is that you, you who are at war with God don't have to be at war with God any longer. You don't have to be at odds with God. You don't have to be haters of God. You can be reconciled to God. You can be brought into God's family. You can have peace with God through his blessed Messiah, through his son. And that's, the, that's verse 17. I came to preach the good news. I came to preach the gospel. That's the good news. Now, what's important, I'm going to make a period and I'm going to come back to what we just confessed in the covenant of grace. I'm convinced as a pastor with all of the technology we have, all of the Bible tools we have, and we have some amazing Bible tools, we can search the scriptures like that. Now, I mean, I have a library that's got several, several thousands of volumes of books that I accumulated over the years. And I have Bible software that will search a verse. It'll search a Greek phrase. It'll search a Hebrew phrase. I can, I can search the exact wording. I can, I can search five, six, seven, eight, ten documents at a time at a blink of an eye. And yet, as, as, as sophisticated as we have become, beloved, I, I, I believe we are more ignorant about the gospel than we've ever been. And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that for a fact. I believe it to be a fact. I believe that's why Christians can't converse about the gospel. They don't understand the covenant of works. They don't understand that first covenant, that original covenant. They don't understand what God had created man to be. They don't understand that God created man to bring God glory, that man was the glory of God in the earth as his ambassador along with his wife, of course. When I say man, I'm not talking about just male. I'm talking about as he created them, male and female. And because we don't understand that, we don't understand the covenant of grace. And that's why there is such confusion and such misunderstanding and, and, and such, I think, uh, looseness in handling the covenant of grace. Again, beloved, when Paul speaks of these terms, these things, when he talks about the gospel he was explaining the gospel to them. He was telling them that, hey, yes, you are, quote, a circumcised Jew. You need Christ. <laughs> you are guilty before the Lord. You're at war with God. God can raise up stones. He can raise up sons of God by these stones. The reason you are coming after me, Paul's telling me, this is what Jesus said to you, to your ancestor. The reason you hate me is because you hate God. If you were truly the sons of Abraham, you'd listen to me. 
And he, he's, he is just bringing out everything he's talking about in this chapter. Those classes of people, those who are perishing and those who are, well, living and believing. And that's why Jesus could condemn the Jews of his time. Why? They sought after signs. Give us a sign, Jesus. We know you've raised the dead. We know you, you've healed the blind. Okay. Yeah, you've made the lame walk. Can you give us a sign? Give us a sign that we want. Give us what we want. And isn't that sort of the nature of man-centered religion? Isn't the nature of man-centered religion? Just give me what I want. Do it like I want you to do it. I'm looking for a church that fits my desires, my delights. And I'm not saying you can't have godly delights, but you, you, that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is just highlighting and laying the foundation that, well, since the fall, right, there's, there's man's way and there's God's way. And man's at war with God's way. Man is at war with God's way. And that's why man will incorporate much of the truth and synchronize it with all of his things that he likes and things he wants to change. It's equivalent to taking your Bible and tearing out the pages you don't like. I mean, that's what it is, really. It's, it's, we don't want the whole counsel of God. We like bits and pieces of it and we'll fill in the gaps with the things we like. And the Jews were very much in that same vein. They did not like this Christ that Paul preached. They didn't want a crucified Christ. They didn't want one born in a manger. They didn't want a savior that had to be wrapped in terrible, stinky well, stained clothes. And in fact, I mean, listen, you think this, what Paul is getting at as we unfold, this is nothing new here. Paul came to Corinth preaching the gospel, destroying the speculations of the wise, destroying the, the speculations of the strong, destroying the speculations, if you will, are the superstitions of the superstitious. Paul came preaching to them this simple gospel and God goes, preach it, Paul, because I'm going to convert many there. Uh, turn to um, Isaiah 53. I want to show you there's just really nothing new here and then I'll do my best to, you know, get on track with my outline, but I find this helpful In Isaiah 53, and again, my point showing you this text is this verse one. Verse one. Who has believed our message or our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I mean, this is, this is <laughs> what's Isaiah the prophet saying? No one believes this. We're setting before you the way of salvation. 
We're showing you the way to God. We're showing you how to be, how to have peace with God. We're showing you how to be made right with God. We're showing you how to be washed and cleansed from your sins. We're showing you that God has made a way for you if you submit and believe and repent of your sins. We're showing you that, who's belie- who believes us? Who believes us? Now that's the point. Look at Isaiah, I mean not Isaiah, look at Jeremiah chapter nine. Thus, verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me and that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness on the earth for I delight in these things declares the Lord. You see, Paul's not making up anything new here. Paul is recognizing the war that's always been waged against the carnal mind against God. The church, roughly five years old, six years old. And what do we see? What we see is a a church that is already losing its identity. A church that's already beginning, uh, falling into these temptations and getting involved in all of these speculations, right? These, these worldly arguments, listening to these philosophers and, and uh, putting value on things that are not valuable. And it's fracturing the church. It's hurt the church. It, it's, it's opened the doors to many other kinds of sins to enter into the church. And Paul now is having to, it's gotten to a point that Paul now needs because of the reports that have come to him, Paul now needs to come and he needs to write a letter and he needs to straighten them out, so to speak. He needs to help them understand their identity. If you look at verse 29 and verse 31, this is sort of the the title of the message, but all of the things that we'll talk about in the chapter really revolve around these two ideas. Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Now let's, what does he mean by that? That is the Christian ministry, the preaching, Christian preaching, the ministry of the gospel, The cross of Christ, the power of God is to be wielded, is to be used, is to be used in such a way that it would render no one any room for boasting before God. That's number one. We see this. There is, if we, if we have a Christian ministry and we ask ourselves at Calcine, what kind of church do we want to be? And we got a rich heritage and a rich tradition of opening up the word of God and and standing upon uh, the truth of God's word. And yet we have to ask ourselves too, because we too can easily fall into the same pitfalls that 
these Christians had fallen into because we are inundated with internet gurus. We are inundated with internet theologians. And, and, and I have to be very careful because I, I, know that, I know that it's a two-edged sword. I'm not saying there's nothing valuable out there to listen to. I think we're on there. Am I preaching against myself? Well, I would say I would rather be in person than to watch me. I can't stand to watch anything I do on video. Beside the point. With all of this, all of this quote information, we are as, listen, we are as stupid as ever. And I don't use that word as an offense. That's a biblical word. Meaning, here's what, when you talk about, when the, the original use of stupid was sort of like this moronic sense of morality. That is, we just fail morally. We fail morally in our responsibilities. We fail morally in our relationships. We fail morally at, at our use of our time. We fail morally in, in the way we see the world. We fail morally in social responsibilities, familial responsibilities, church. That, that's... And so Paul says in verse 29, we, we preach, we serve in such a way that no man would stand before God and have reason to boast. In fact, it would be, it'd be even strengthened by understanding it this way, that the Christian ministry trains and disciples us that we wouldn't even think about standing before God and boasting. How about that? Look at verse 31. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that more than likely is a quotation or a summation of the verse we just read in Jeremiah 9. Because that's exactly what that text told us. That don't let the mighty man Boast in his strength. Don't let the wise man boast in his intellect. Don't let the rich man boast in his, in his riches. But let them boast in this, that they know me, says the Lord. And of course, to know the Lord is to know him savingly. It's to know him through faith. It's to know him through repentance. It's to know him through submission. To come and put one's faith in God is to submit to God. Look at verse 18. So we see in verse 17, Paul certainly gives justification for his not baptizing many, but focused on the preaching of the gospel. And again, he says, he makes it clear in verse 17 that he was very mindful of the techniques he used, the methods he used. He didn't want to distract from the glory of God, from the power of the cross, from the simplicity of the gospel itself. It's not hard. It's not a hard thing, but it's a foreign concept. It's a foreign idea to the lost, to the carnal, to those who do not believe. It's, 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 it's an offense, he says, and that's what Paul says. To the, to the Jews, he's what? A stumbling block. 
And to the Greeks, he's offensive. In verse 18, he says, for the word of the cross, there's the gospel again, and presented to us in another way, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's two things I want us to focus on. Number one, the word of the cross, and number two, it's the power of God. The word of the cross, what is the word of the cross? Well, the word of the cross is the gospel. And it's not simply, it's not, it's not reduced to Jesus died for your sins. That's just, that's a part, but that's not it. It's that who died for your sins? It's Jesus died for your sins. Who's Jesus? Jesus was the one before the foundation of the world in the council of peace in the Godhead that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit laid out the plan to save sinful men and women. And there was a covenant among the Godhead. The Father says, I will give you a body. I will bless you with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I will, I will put you in the earth and I will be with you and I will give you the things to say. And Jesus says, I will go. I will robe myself with this human flesh. I will walk with men. I will teach and instruct them. I'll be subjected to the infirmities of the human flesh. I'll know what it is to be hungry. Remember, this is the son of God talking. He has no need. He doesn't eat. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't drink. He's fully, fully all the time satisfied with himself and is in the, the companionship of the Trinity. He lacks nothing nor needs anything. And yet Jesus says, I will put on human flesh. I will become a man and I will be subjected to all of these desires and wants and, and I, will, I will get hungry and I will hurt and I will feel pain and I will feel sadness and I will have sorrow and I will go and I will walk perfectly in the ways of the Lord and I will lay down my life as a ransom for many. And the Spirit's portion of it is, then I will come and you will send me when you ascend to the Father and to his right hand and you will send me and I will apply you to the hearts and the minds of your elect, to those whom you have chosen before the foundation of the world. I will give to them Jesus. I will give them the gift of faith. I will move upon their hearts to repent of their sins. I will open their eyes. I will open their ears because it's such a stupid culture. It is such a stupid, dull culture. I will come and I will aliving and awaken them to this simple gospel truth. That's the cross of Christ. And you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's another aspect of it I want you to be aware of. What makes Christianity different? I mean, isn't Jesus just like Gandhi? I mean, is he, you know, was he like Muhammad before Muhammad? He's just a traveling teacher, philosopher? No, he's not. And, and when you talk about this cross of Christ, we need to emphasize something. Jesus was one of thousands that were crucified. You ever think about that? Crucifixion was a common execution. It was common 
for them to see a procession of criminals coming down through the street, herded out to the dump site, because that's what it was. It was a dump. It was a landfill. I mean, you, you don't, you don't want to do that in a nice place. Herded out to the landfill side of town and nailed to a cross. That was common. And here Jesus, he's nailed to a cross. He's ushered out in the same path, in the same procession. He's brought out to the same landfill. He's nailed between two thieves. But why is his different? Because it's the power of God and the salvation. He's the son of God. The grave could not hold him. He was resurrected on the third day, witnessing and testifying that God's hand was on him, that God had received and accepted his sacrifice on behalf of sinners. That's what his resurrection represents. He went from humiliation to extreme exaltation, Philippians 2. It's not the cross of any man. It's the cross of Christ. It's the sacrifice of Christ. It's the suffering of Christ. These things, beloved, that you are hearing in your ears right now, these are the things that fall deeply into your heart that if you are a Christian, they are unspeakable joys to you. And the world will sit and look and they go, I don't understand it. How can hearing about someone ushered down through the streets with criminals, brought out to a, a, a landfill site, nailed between, what? what? Yeah. That's why Paul not only says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the spirit of God that comes to the heart of that elect sinner and begins to take away the stony, the hardness of that heart and that ears begin to hear, I cannot stand before God and justify myself. I must put my faith in Christ. Now, if we'd have finished reading Isaiah 53, right? We would have went on to see when people hear about God pouring out his wrath upon his son, they thought, I can't listen to that. Who does that? Why did God do it that way? Well, as Paul says, because in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He did it that way to, to highlight and to magnify the foolishness of men. The things that, that we tend to put our emphasis on, that we tend to put our, our uh, trust in, God destroys. The power of God, beloved, is this. It's what we confessed this morning with Ezekiel 36. It's the that God moves upon our hearts. And, and this message that 
many despise to those who come to those that have the spirit of God that are given new hearts and new eyes and new ears and given the gift of faith, guess what? It becomes the, the most beautiful hymn and song and truth one could possibly hear. It's equivalent to the, the, the beauty of a sunrise. How many times have you seen a sunrise in your life? That, and how many times... Let me, I want to get all artsy on you for a minute. But how many times when you witness that, that, that beautiful sunrise do you stand amazed? In awe. That's the same way we hear the gospel every time we hear it. I'm amazed that God would be moved to save sinners. A God who lacked nothing and needed nothing. A God that had nothing to prove. A God that did not in any way needed to prove his strength or needed to prove his wisdom or in a, of anything along those lines. And God is the one that says, I will come to you and I will be your God and you will be my people. And like that rising of the sun, we sit to every preaching and the gospel that we hear, we go, Praise God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That, the power of God, beloved, is that, that Ephesians 2 is the translation out of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. God's powerful. He can do that. His power translates you out of Satan's family. What is Satan's family? Rebels? <laughs> Rebels? Haters of God, Satan is a rebel. Satan hates God. We bear those same traits. Thus, that's why Jesus could tell the Jews, you are of your father, the devil. You bear those traits that he bears. You're like him. The power of God translates you out of that. It brings you out of that darkness, the darkness. Now, what are we talking about this darkness? The intellectual darkness. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not saying... Yes, you can do two plus two. Well, we used to could do two plus two. I've seen the little things where, you know, well, two plus two can be five. Not in this dimension, right? Not in this world. We, I, it's, it's that mental darkness. It's that, that, that mental moral darkness. That's why Jesus said, if the eye is dark, how dark is the soul? If the eye is dark, how dark is the heart? If what you don't understand and what you don't know and is swayed by the things that you don't like and you don't hate, how dark is your soul? And this is why Paul, I believe, goes on. If you look at verse 17, 18, and 19, they're all connected by the word for. You can see, for Christ did not. Verse 18, for the word of the cross. Verse 19, for it is written. This is a, this is a continuous thought of Paul. This is in the same breath, if you will, as he's writing this out. Turn, turn to Isaiah 29. This is a quotation, verse 19 is a quotation from Isaiah. 
And, and this is, let me back up and What's the context? It's so fitting to what Paul is really conveying, the truth that Paul is conveying in his letter to Corinth and to us now. But Isaiah is just rebuking um, Judah. He's rebuking Israel. And basically they have decided to, they've had all these blessings. God has blessed them mightily. They've got all of these um, advantages and they've got this, the, the true worship, right? They've got the temple. They've got the sacrificial system. They got, they've just got all of these benefits, right? And that's what Paul says in the New Testament. He says, well, what were the benefits of this Old Testament system? And Paul says, well, much in every way. Because it was in this Old Testament structure, what we call the church under age, right? What we call the first administration of the covenant of grace, all of those ceremonies set forth Christ in his person, in his work, in moral responsibilities. It highlighted so much of the Christian life or so much of a believer's life of those things that we would put our faith and trust in when Jesus come on the scene. And, and now they've become dull to those things. They were, they were indifferent to them, if you will. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words, they honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Now just let that sink in. They have become dull. They are able to go through the motions. They are able to recite the Apostles' Creed. They are able to recite the Lord's Prayer. But it doesn't mean anything. They don't perform in their responsibilities. I don't mean performance, but they don't perform their responsibilities. They don't do the things that worship requires of them in the heart and the mindset that to glory be to God for the great things he hath done. Glory to God in the highest. They do them and they just go home. And then they live in their dwellings as if there is no God. I mean, they've got the placards on the wall. They may even like Christian music. The point is God doesn't have their hearts. And when God doesn't have your heart, you're dull to the preaching of the gospel. You don't care about it. Your heart's not in it. I sit and I go through the motions. I can, I can do this. I can, I can do this for two hours. But that's it. And notice this is, let's keep reading. He says, 
And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. And here's what God is saying. This is why Paul quotes it. God says, listen, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get fed up with this rebellion. Now listen to me. Let me make application to it in our time. Because we're asking the question, what kind of church does Calcine I want to be? Brothers and sisters, it's obvious that there's, God has poured out a stupor in the earth. It's obvious. And when we go to church and we want to hear, uh, we want, you know, we want anything to save us but Christ. Anything but drawing near to the cross. Because at the foot of the cross, you must have all of your speculations destroyed. All you can do at the cross is submit to the glory of God, submit to the power of God, and submit to the will of God. I have nothing before you, O God. I bring nothing in my hand but sin, and I'm asking you to wash me and cleanse me and take me and use me. For your mere good pleasure because there's nothing I have that would cause you to want to do any good to me. He has poured out a stupor in the earth. He's poured out men trusting in technology, men trusting in, in, in medical advancements, technological advancement, prosperity, more money than we've ever had, nicer homes than we ever had, greater transportation than we ever had. I drive two, a little over two hours to get here. Could you imagine if we had to walk? It'd be impossible. This happens because of technology. I won't think I'd ride a horse for two hours. I don't think the horse would want me to ride him for two hours. We've got more than we've ever had and we're dumber than we've ever been. And I don't, I'm, not, I'm not insulting you, please. I'm including myself in this. As a people, the church must decide, beloved, as we consider that statement to God be the glory if we're going to be a church that is focused upon the power of God, the cross of Christ. A church that is dedicated to, to what? Bringing the power of God to bear upon a sad heart. Now, hey, a dark mind. Mental illness is rampant in our culture. Everything's mental illness. And I'm not saying that there aren't valid things that can be treated, but here's what I am saying. And here's what I will say and stand upon. The gospel of Christ can take away demons. The darkness of the mind. There is no doubt we live in the weak, at least in my lifetime, and I'm not that old. But I've talked to people much older than me, and they have confessed that they've not seen anything like the fragility of the mind. How, do, how would we remedy that? 
How, how, do, how do we remedy this aspect that when things begin to get a little hard, we need a mental health break? We need to preach the cross. We need to talk about what Christ suffered. We need to talk about what Christ has done, what Christ has delivered us from. We need to talk about the power of God. We need to talk about how God delivered us from those weaknesses. That's why Paul said, look, Paul even went before the Lord multiple occasions said, Lord, do this for me. Nope. Nope. Well, if you don't do it for me, I got to take a mental health day and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sit home and I'm not going to preach in the synagogue because they hurt my feelings. I know I'm making fun of us. I'm making fun of the world that we live in. I know that. It's, it's divine irony, divine mockery because that's what Paul calls it. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. This is 2 Corinthians 13, if you want to know where that is. My grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, I'm strong. And I'm not going to take away your weakness. Because to take away your weakness would to take away the strength that I'm giving you. And, and the way that I'm manifesting myself in your life. And I'm not going to do it. Because Paul, you struggle with arrogance. And I'm going to take that away from you. Beloved, the things that you may be using in your life as a crutch, God is waiting for you to just throw that crutch down and say, Lord, my weakness is your strength. Use me. Use me, Lord. Why? Because I believe in the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. That is the power of God unto being saved. That's what, what is it to be saved? To be delivered? To be brought out of danger? To be brought to life, safety? A place where now God is using you and working in you and working through you. What? This life, this blessed life of Christ in you. Where he will by more and more, week after week, year after year, grow you up in his son Jesus. If you read, and I encourage you to do so, read Matthew Henry's commentary on Isaiah 29. And he goes into great detail about their stupor, their, their delusion that they lived under. And it's, it's, it does parallel our own age. He uses a term, intoxication. Beloved, men are intoxicated with themselves. We are drunk on humanism. And churches are affected by it. Churches are encouraged. Listen to this YouTube guy. Listen to this teacher. Hey, listen to this unique and creative understanding of this passage of Scripture. You need to listen to these things. No, we need to focus on letting the Scripture interpret the Scripture. 
that apostolic teaching that's been handed down for centuries now, we need to focus on preaching the cross of Christ. We need to focus on preaching it in a way that does not take away from Christ and his glory and the glory of God. Be, be careful about our methods and techniques. Because it is not a pastor's sophistication and education that's going to save anybody. It's the power of God. In verse 19, I want to read it to you how Paul writes it and makes some application. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Well, brothers and sisters, this is what I'll leave you with. We talk about what kind of church do we want to be? Well, we want to be a church that glorifies the Lord. We want to be a church that strips man of any boasting. We want to be a church that preaches Christ in such a manner that he alone is exalted and God is the, receives the glory. You know what the first catechism question is of the shorter and larger is what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, let me give you a little bit of reformed logic. You say, oh, pastor, are you using philosophy? Well, let me give you some. Some biblical logic. If your chief end is to glorify God, and it is, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Isn't that the same truth that ought to be in your home? What's the purpose of your home? To glorify God. Enjoy the home. Enjoy Him forever. We can expand that from the home to the culture, to even the church. What's the church's job? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What's the job of the church in society? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, how will the church do that if we don't tear down human speculation? How will we do that if we exalt man equal with God? How could we do that? How can we, how, listen, brothers and sisters, To God be the glory this morning here in your life as we move forward making the cross central in our lives. When you begin thinking highly of yourself, look to the cross. Look at the suffering of, if you were so good, if I were so good, I mean if I was so wonderful, would, would Christ have to suffer like that? Go read Isaiah 53. By his stripes we were healed. And I will say this, and I think it, it complements what we're talking about here. As you're tempted to go out and to listen to all of the stuff, these guys seem smart, beautiful, good looking, 
successful. (laughs) They seem like everything the world wants. Jesus was not like that. I I believe Jesus' appearance, there was nothing about his appearance, Isaiah 53 says, that would cause us to want to go after him. We wouldn't look at Jesus and go, I need to listen to him. But it's what he said. It was his teaching. It was what he did as the son of God, raising the dead, healing the the lame and causing blind, the blind to see. It's what he said that appealed to people. He, he He didn't look like this magnificent teacher. He didn't look successful. He just came in the power of God. And he changed lives. And he's still changing lives. And he'll change your life. He'll change your neighbor's life. And that's why Paul says later on in this, uh, in this letter, some of you were effeminate. Some of you were murderers. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were liars. But no longer are you. For you've been washed in the blood of the lamb. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed our meeting here this morning and we praise your name for it. You have opened up this word to us and Lord, even though we've not touched on everything, we have touched on those things, Lord, that are, are needed. Things that we need to listen to, things we need to consider, things we need to meditate upon. Lord, we want to be a church that glorifies you. And we want to do it, Lord, in the vein of the gospel. We want to do it in the vein of the the cross of Christ. We want to strip ourselves, Lord, of any boasting. We have nothing to boast about. But, Lord, we pray that you would make our boasting in you and you alone. As you continue to mature us, to disciple us, Lord, and change us. Lord, help us more and more speak to your glory. Lord, and not our own strength. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.